Hi everyone, welcome back. We're looking at the essay called Beyond the Reality Principle. It starts on page 58 and continues up through 74. The real action for us begins on page 65. The section titled Freud's Revolutionary Method. Let's read the first few paragraphs together and I'll kind of walk you through some of what's happening here. <clears throat> the first sign of an attitude of submission to reality in Freud's work was the recognition that since the majority of psychical phenomena in man are apparently related to a social relations function, there is no reason to exclude the pathway which provides the most usual access to it the subject's own account of these phenomena. So what you have here is something psychological and sociological coming together in each human that makes the linguistic part of being human important. Now here's how I get that. The majority of psychical phenomena, that's stuff that is occurring inside us, psychological stuff, <clears throat> is related to a social relations function that's what's happening outside the relationships that we're in friends family neighbors and the like now what Freud knew and what Lacan accepts here is that all individual psychology is social psychology we are made from the relationships we have with other people our interiors are shot through with our relationships with others in the exterior environment so what we have are little societies inside each of us. Our minds are populated, ourselves are populated by all our interactions that we have with other people. And what Lacan says, and this is his great addition, now we have to account for the subject's own speech with regards to these phenomena. So Freud really understood the link between the psychological and the sociological the interior and the exterior. He also understood that it was important to focus on what patients say. Lacan is here adding to that. He's building on this idea by focusing on the subject's own account of these phenomena. Now you can scroll down a little bit here and you can see on page 65 he brings up the imaginary in the next paragraph. Consequently, he says, the symptom which has a real signification, cannot be psychological except, quote, in appearance. And it is distinguished from the ordinary register of psychical life by some discordant feature in which its serious character manifests itself. The best way to read this is to say that the symptom appears in the subject's speech as a signifier. It's a signifier. It has a real signification. Now we get to the good stuff, the next paragraph. Freud understood that it was this very choice that made the patient's account worthless. The patient's speech is somehow worthless, and yet this is precisely where the value in that speech lies. Pay attention. If we wish to recognize a reality that is proper to psychical reactions, we must not begin by choosing among them. We must begin by no longer choosing. 
Now, the way I read that is to say, we must listen to everything that a patient says when they communicate to us <clears throat> in the room, assuming you're the doctor here, which is to say, you're no longer choosing what's the important stuff, what's the valuable stuff. And usually in the case of regular human speech, we choose against the stuff that we think is, quote, worthless. But let's see if this plays out. In order to gauge their efficacy, we must respect their succession. Now, what I think he means by that is the doctor in this case, the analyst, the psychoanalyst, by respecting their succession means that they are just simply listening to the flow of the patient's speech and noting the sequence of events that come up when somebody, say, tells them about a dream or the like. Certainly, there is no question of restoring the chain of those reactions through the narrative, but the very moment in which the account is given, here we are back to the patient's speech, their communicative practice, can constitute a significant fragment of the chain on condition that we demand that the patient provide the entire text and that we free him from the chains of narrative. And these two phrases are important, the entire text and we free him because the next paragraph gets into some of the technical moves that are going to be happening in analysis. Let's read through them together. This is the way in which what we might call analytic experience is constituted. Its first condition is formulated in a law of non-omission, which promotes everything that is self-explanatory, the everyday and the ordinary promotes all of this to the status of interesting that is usually reserved for the remarkable, but it is incomplete without the second condition. So this first condition, the law of non-omission, it means don't leave anything out. Tell the whole truth. If you know that expression, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Here it is, don't leave anything out, don't omit anything. Everything that happens in analytic experience, the everyday and the ordinary, is just as interesting as the stuff that seems super remarkable. And what psychoanalysis teaches us is that ordinary communicative practice is in fact more remarkable than the extraordinary use of language that we sometimes see. <clears throat> so don't leave anything out would be the first piece of advice if you wanted to become a psychoanalyst. You listen to everything. And the stuff that you think is worthless turns out to be the most interesting. Law number two, the law of non-systematization, which positing incoherence as a condition of analytic experience presumes significant all the dross of mental life, not only the representations in which scholastic psychology sees only non-meaning, dream scenarios, presentiments, daydreams, and confused or lucid delusions, but also the phenomena that are not even granted a civil status in it, so to speak, since they are altogether negative, slips of the tongue and bungled actions. So the law of non-systematization would basically say here that incoherence is the name of the game. A lot of times when people speak, especially when they're talking about themselves and things that matter to them and things that don't matter to them, it's not systematic speech. It's not organized like the essay that we're reading here. 
it's disjointed, people are all over the place, they're chattering about this and chattering about that. So don't look for systematic speech. Listen for incoherence as a condition of analytic experience. Now, what does that mean? It means speech proceeds oftentimes like a dream where one thing leads to the other and there are tons of non sequiturs and things just don't seem to hang together. The daydream is just as relevant as your focused moment in an afternoon's work session. When you feel confused or lucid, even delusional, this is ripe stuff. So it's in other words, when you're saying everything without being limited by the bounds of coherent speech, cogent discourse, when you can say what's on your mind without having to be all eloquent. What's interesting too is this is usually a standard for a good relationship. You know you're in a good relationship when you can quote, be yourself. And what that usually means is you don't have to be all put together all the time. You can tell your partner anything. There's the law of non-omission. You don't need to omit anything about your experience. And you don't always have to be put together. You don't always have to be perfect as you may have tried to be on the, your first date. Here's the law of non-systematization. You don't have to be all coherent and cogent and coherent key for this stuff. The same is true in analytic experience that you would want in a good interpersonal relationship. Final move. Let us note that these two laws, the law of non-omission and the law of non-systematization, or better, the rules of analytic experience, the first of which was isolated by Pichon, appear in Freud's work in the form of a single rule that he formulated in accordance with the concept prevailing at the time, the law of free association. So what Freud does is he combines the law of non-omission and the law of non-systematization into a single law here at the top of page 66, the law of free association. Free association. What are we after here? Okay, in our last lecture, we talked about that the way that psychical and social relations come together to form our senses of self. And we also talked about the role of language in all of that. Language is kind of an interesting one because language is like your skin in the sense that your skin is what serves as a barrier, but also a connector between what's inside you, physically speaking, and what's outside you, physically speaking. Language does the same thing. Language is addressed to other people it's something that is verbalized when you speak, addressed to others, but it is usually connected to something within. Usually it shows us trying to express something, to press something out, to express something interior, a thought, a feeling, or the like. So language serves as this go-between between interior and exterior as well, between psychic and social. The language in particular that's relevant for Lacan building on Freud, we called free association. 
And free association is when the patient in an analytic experience would sit down and obey two laws. The first is the law of non-omission, which means you say everything and anything. Don't leave anything out, say as much as you want. And the second law is non-systematization. You wouldn't feel obliged to keep things coherent or even to speak in sentences. You would allow your speech to function as weirdly and wonkily and as much like a weird dream sequence as you would like. You say anything and everything however you want. That would be the law of free association. So the type of language that is uniquely relevant to psychoanalytic experience is a free-flowing, everyday, mundane, sometimes scattered, weird, dreamlike, free associative way of speaking. Let's learn a little bit more about how this way of speaking operates. For on page 66, you look down in the second paragraph under the next section, language pops again. And then in the final paragraph on page 66, beginning with but the psychoanalyst, we see language at center stage. Let's see what more we can learn about this. But the psychoanalyst, in order not to detach analytic experience from the language of the situation that it implies, the situation of the interlocutor, comes upon the simple fact that language, prior to signifying something, signifies to someone. It is simply because the analyst is there, listening, that the man who speaks addresses him. And since he forces his discourse not to want to say anything, he becomes what this man wants to tell him. What the man says may in fact have no meaning, but what he says to the analyst conceals one anyway. Now this is important here. Before language means anything, when you speak it, it forms a relationship to somebody. There is an element of addressivity here that is occurring regardless of what you say. And there are many ways of speaking where what is communicated is not any particular thought or feeling content, but simply the existence of a relationship. So for instance, you're walking down the hallway, someone's coming at you, and you say, how are you doing? And they respond, nothing much. What's up with you? And you say, I'm fine, thank you. Each of us have had weird interactions like this, where if you look at them on paper, they seem strange. But in actual practice, it's very easy and almost unnoticeable when someone says, what's up? And you're like, fine, thank you. Because what's matters, what matters in that interaction is not what you're transmitting, not your actual feeling state. What matters there is the check-in. It's somebody just checking in to see how you're doing, to see how your relationship to them is doing. It's them saying, hey, I'm not going to murder you in this hallway. I'm not a bad guy. We're on the same team. Here, I see you and you see me and we're in a relationship. This is what Lacan means here. Prior to signifying something, whether you're having a good day or a bad day, whether you've been doing a lot or not very much, prior to signifying anything about you or your day, you are signifying to someone. And the way that you're signifying to someone in the example we just mentioned is by greeting them. 
not by um, directing a hostile gesture towards them, but by simply greeting them as if to say hello. So what you're communicating here to someone before anything about how you're doing and all this stuff is that you have a positive, friendly relationship to them that you hope is reciprocated. And let me tell you how the truth of this example plays out. If you walk down the hallway and you ask somebody, hey, how you doing? And they respond and say, you know what? I've been having a really bad day. Do you have 30 minutes to speak with me about this? I've got some serious issues. Actually, it's been a terrible day. Thank you for asking. I'm having a really terrible time. That's not an appropriate answer. In that context, that person looks weird because the purpose of that interaction is not to actually convey how you feel to another person. It's just a check-in to mark the friendly relationship that you have to them. As soon as you actually start to transmit your conduct and explain to somebody what it is you're feeling or what it is you've been up to in detail, the whole interaction goes off the rails because it's not, the purpose of that interaction is not to transmit information. It's to ritualistically reinforce a relationship, a friendship, a cordiality. There is no information that needs to be transmitted. And that's proven by the fact that whenever somebody does try and transmit information, the interaction gets weird. So you walk down the hallway, you see somebody and you say, hey, what's up? The appropriate answer, you know it, is nothing much. What's up with you? But that's never true. There's always all kinds of things that are up. You could just as easily respond to that question and say, what's up? I'll tell you what's up. Are you paying attention to what's happening on the eastern borders of Ukraine? And you start going into the details about it. That could be something that's up. That's definitely up. It's been up for a long time. It's going to be up for a long time. You could certainly regale this person walking down the hallway with that part of what's up. You could talk about your day. You could talk about what's happening in your family. You could talk about what's happening in a book that you're reading. I'll tell you what's up. I watched eight episodes of a really great show on Netflix last night. I'd like to talk with you about that. What's up? Well, let me ask you this. Do you have 30 minutes to talk about our Lord Jesus Christ? You see what I'm saying? When you ask somebody what's up, you're not actually asking them to tell you what is up with them, what they're up to. You want them to just say nothing much because that means we're cool. You're cool. We're cool. I'm cool. You keep your stuff. I keep my stuff. Thank you. Goodbye. Good relationship. I'm emphasizing this because it's the relational, intersubjective aspect of speech. Prior to speaking anything of substance to somebody, it's the very fact that we are exchanging words in a language that we both presume to understand and the relationship, the connection that is made there that comes first. Prior to telling anybody anything about yourself, when you speak to them, there's a moment of address. I am singling you out to address you. And in that address, depending on how the address goes, is a relationship. There's a relationality that precedes the transmission of any information. And Lacan is saying that is absolutely fundamental to what happens in psychoanalysis. It is simply because the analyst is there listening that the man who speaks addresses him. And since he forces his discourse not to want to say anything, 
he becomes what this man wants to tell him. What the man says may in fact have no meaning, as in the case of the example where someone says, what's up? And you say, I'm doing all right, thanks. Has no meaning. But what he says to the analyst conceals one anyway. In this case, the concealed meaning would be the friendly relationship. That what's up, I'm fine, thank you, conveys beyond any meaningless aspect of the interaction. It is in the impulse to respond that the listener senses this. And it is by suspending this impulse to respond that the analyst understands the meaning of the discourse. So here the technical thing Lacan is getting at is that a good psychoanalyst is somebody who acknowledges that it's appropriate to respond to somebody's address and yet resists that impulse, does not respond, and in so doing, understands the meaning of the discourse. It's at the level of call and response and the relational dynamic, the relationship, the intersubjective relationship that is established when you address speech to another person, that we see all of the great foundational movements of communication coming into play. Don't forget, the origin of communication as a word is not union. People often see communication and they think, oh, it's about union, communion. No. The etymological origin of the word communication is from the Latin munis, which doesn't mean to unite. It means to share. Munis was a sharing, a partition, if you will. What we have here is a basic understanding of communication as sharing. In this case, sharing a relationship, sharing a hallway, sharing a public space, a friendship with somebody. That is all happening before anything is communicated. You see, even at the start of this lecture, I presume that you have English enough to understand what I'm saying. And in presuming this, in addressing you in English, I am also presuming a foundational relationship, a relationship prior to any particular use of the English language, namely the assumption that we all speak the same. Whether that's a fair assumption or not is another question, but this is exactly where we are here on page 66 of this reading. Welcome back. Here we are on page 66, working through this essay, Beyond the Reality Principle. We've been talking about language and its relational function. The basic function of language when it's used is to mark and oftentimes establish a relationship with someone prior to the expression of any particular thought or feeling content. Lacan now here at the bottom of page 66 wants to return to that so-called thought content, especially in the, in the context of analytic experience. So I'm reading here seven lines from the bottom of page 66. He then recognizes in it an intention in the discourse that the um, analyzant or the patient is directing at the analyst. 
one of the intentions that represent a certain tension in social relations, a demanding intention, a punitive intention, a proprietary intention, propitiatory intention, I mean, a demonstrative intention or a purely aggressive intention. Having thus understood this intention, let us observe how language transmits it. So there you are with your intention, your thought, your feeling, whatever it is you're going to express. And now let's talk about how language transmits it. And this is where things are going to get interesting. Pay attention. Three lines up from the bottom of page 66. It does so in two ways about which analysis teaches us a great deal. And by analysis, of course, he means psychoanalysis. It is expressed but not understood by the subject. So that's the first thing. The true intention of your speech, of your discourse, whatever it is, it is expressed but not understood by you. In what his discourse relates about his lived experience. And this is true as long as the subject assumes the moral anonymity of expression. This is the form of symbolism. The important part here is expressed but not understood. Second point, it is conceptualized but denied by the subject in what his discourse asserts about his lived experience. And this is true as long as the subject systematizes his conception. This is the form of negation. Here the important phrase is conceptualized but denied by the subject. So how does language transmit our intentions? It does so in two ways. Language transmits intentions in ways that allow these intentions to be expressed but not understood by us and conceptualized but also denied. Now here what Lacan is getting at are some true intentions, maybe even unconscious intentions. Let's see where he goes with it. I'm on page 67, fourth line down. In analytic experience, intention thus turns out to be unconscious insofar as it is expressed and conscious insofar as it is repressed. That's a nice little rhyme, isn't it? Unconscious insofar as it's expressed, conscious insofar as it's repressed. Now, what do we mean by this? Think about it this way. What our speech expresses, unbeknownst to us, is our unconscious intentions. And what we're conscious of in all of this, in the moment of speech, our so-called intentions, are only repressions. They only point to the repressed forms of our unconscious intentions. And this is a tricky thing to hold in mind here. So in every utterance, there are going to be these two levels of signification happening. There's the conscious signification. There's what you mean to say or what you meant to say. And then there's what you actually communicated, an unconscious intention. So I have this t-shirt that I like to wear. It just says, apology screamed, period. If you read The Onion, it's a famous headline of theirs. Think about this, an apology screamed. 
I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. It's kind of funny, right? But notice how it's working here. The conscious intent here is to tell somebody that you're sorry, to apologize for a, a trans, for a, for a, for a mistake that you made. Um, and then to have them readmit you into the fold of society and welcome you back in. Thanks for your apology. I forgive you. We're cool. There's your conscious intention. But if you've ever been in a situation where you find yourself screaming you're sorry, there's something way more than a simple, straightforward apology going on. When you actually say, I'm sorry, and you scream it like that, you're saying that you're really not sorry. You're actually still feeling pretty aggro towards this person, quite aggressive to scream an apology. That's why it's funny, because the irony is thick here. You're trying to ask forgiveness, but you're doing so in a way that gives offense. That's important. That's relevant here. You have, in other words, some unconscious element that is coming through in your speech and in defiance to the conscious intent that you're trying to bring forward. In fact, the conscious intent that you have, in other words, to apologize to somebody, only points to the repressed aggression that you still have towards them, well signaled by the fact that you are screaming this apology at them. Which is why Lacan goes on to say, and language being approached via its function of social expression reveals both its significant unity and intention and its constitutive ambiguity as subjective expression, admitting, and here's the key point, something that contradicts thought or using thought to lie. It's the unconscious intent that contradicts your conscious thought. And in an analytic experience, the doctor is listening for this kind of stuff, listening for all the apologies screamed. 